No. Okay, so on Wednesday, that's right, we had day off on Friday. So on Wednesday, this is where we were talking about cytotoxic reactions. We were talking about CD8 positive killer cells and NK cells. Before we start talking about this sort of thing and finishing this up before we can start to talk about what we're supposed to talk about today, remember we got presentations starting on Wednesday. Yike! Right, so everybody's happy to see presentations come. So, I'm going to have my cell phone, and my cell phone, like your cell phone, has a little countdown timer. So I'm going to set my cell phone to five minutes. You're going to hear a beep go off after five minutes. That means you have a minute to go, so you've got to wrap it up. And then when you hear the beep again, that's when you get the hook. Right? It's time to stop and move on because we got a lot of people that we got to get to. So presentations are starting. So we're going to have presentations on Wednesday, Friday, and then again on Monday. Right? So if you're going to, if you, if it's a day you're going to do your presentation, get here a little bit early, right? And give me your thumb drive or your jump drive, and I can just sort of line up all the presentations in here so that we're sort of ready to go. All right? So people on Wednesday, you kind of get a break because you're the first ones going. So you're going to set the bar for everybody else. So hopefully the bar is going to be way up here, not sort of way down here. <laughs> All right, so and I'll, I'll remind you again before we leave today that we're going to do that. So we were talking about natural killer cells after we had talked about right CD8 positive T cells turning into cytotoxic lymphocytes into CTL cells and that those CTL cells have permission to be able to go in and destroy cells, and NK cells are going to be able to destroy targets in the absence of prior sensitization. And we talked a little bit about the whole uh, implication of, you know, virus entering the, the body and virus titers going up, and interferon alpha and beta being on the rise during early viral infections, and interferon Alpha and beta are the, right, interfere with viruses, and they're going to do things that are going to put a non-viral state into cells that haven't been infected with the virus yet to make it harder for that virus to be uh, infecting cells that are in the area, right? And they're basically going to have a, or enact a mechanism that the cells are going to basically shut down when they're able to detect double-stranded DNA or double-stranded RNA. Since most of the viruses are going to be double-stranded DNA or double-stranded RNA, interferon synthesis is going to be stimulated by those types of nucleic acids inside the cell at any one point in time. Right? This is going to be able to increase, NK cells are going to increase because NK cells aren't going to have to wait that five to seven days or so for the CTLs to be armed and activated. So the NK cells are going to get in there almost instantly to start to knock down that viral infection. So what do we know about NK cells? Well, we know NK cells right, look like lymphocytes, histologically speaking, even though they look like them. They don't have T cell receptors, and they don't have any CD3 on their cell surface. So right off the bat, right, we sort of have this sort of incongruity to these things that are called large granular lymphocytes or null cells. All right? Their development seems to bypass the thymus because you can find NK cells in the nude mouse. 
We talked about the nude mouse. One of its mutations is that it doesn't have a thymus, so it doesn't have cell-mediated immunity because it doesn't have T cells because when those thymocytes leave the bone marrow, they make their way to the thymus. There is no thymus, so they can't undergo education. But right, NK cells, right, even though they're very lymphocyte-like, are very unlymphocyte-like in that they don't have to make their way to the thymus. They're going to be able to right, do the sort of killing they need to do without the use of an antigen receptor on the cell surface. And their uh, secondary messages are going to be transmitted internally without the use of the CD3 molecule. The thing that they all do possess is CD16, and CD16 is the major marker for uh, NK cells. So NK cells themselves employ a very different cell-mediated method of recognition and destruction of cells. Right? Before those CD8 positive T cells, we're going to use their T cells, use their T cell receptors to recognize that viral peptide in the MHC class one molecule, and then respond appropriately. NK cells use a whole different sort of setup in that they use what are called activation receptors and they use inhibitory receptors. So they have, they use what is called the opposing signal sort of model. So that what's going to happen is, here's the NK cell coming into contact with this normal cell, right? So let's say it's a normal cell. So a normal cell has MHC class 1 on the cell surface. There is some sort of activation ligand on the surface. So that when this T cell, uh, when this NK cell receptor, this is a, an inhibitory receptor, comes into contact with the MHC molecule, an inhibitory signal is going to be transmitted into the interior of the cell, and that's going to override this activation signal. Right? So the activation signal is always going to be sort of turned on, and the inhibitory signal is going to be the overthrow switch here. So when the inhibitory signal comes through, because the NK cell has recognized this as being a normal cell, nothing's going to happen to that target cell. Right? There'll be no killing at all. But on a virally infected cell, one of the things that takes place on a virally infected cell is that, or one of the changes that the virus induces on a target cell is to decrease the amount of MHC class 1 on the cell surface. Right? So clearly, Evolutionarily speaking, right, through natural selection, the virus has found, and I'm not putting human-like characteristics, right, the virus has come up with a way to thwart the immune system, and that's to, right, decrease the number of class 1 MHC on the surface. And it's doing that so that CTL cells, right, that's the signal that CTL cells are going to be able to use. When there's a viral peptide in here, these CTL cells are now going to become, if this was a CTL cell, are now going to become activated and kill that virally infected cell. So one of the things that a virus will do is to decrease the amount of class 1 on the cell surface, and that's what the NK cells are going to pick up on. Right? If there's an inappropriate amount of MHC class 1 molecules on the surface, the NK cells are going to become activated. What's an inappropriate amount? We really don't have a number. Right? But if there are, right, there must be some sort of signal for this NK cell. The overall signal is, 
right? That if this, act, if this inhibitory receptor isn't able to come into contact with an MHC class 1 molecule, then this inhibitory signal is never transmitted. If that inhibitory signal doesn't become transmitted because there is no MHC class 1 there, then this death signal is going to be transmitted, and that's when the NK cell is going to be able to destroy that target cell, right? So that's the opposing signal model, right? A few inhibitory receptors and a bunch of activating receptors, right? So MHC class 1 on a normal cell, that inhibitory signal is going to override the activating signal, and nothing's going to be able to take place. If, on the other hand, we don't have a lot of MHC class 1 on, the, on here, or there's altered, then the positive signal is going to be able to come in, and now that NK cell is going to be able to destroy that cell. Right? So it is regulated. It's not, you know, that there's no sort of regulation taking place. And it is immune-regulated, let's say, right, because we still are looking for MHC class 1 molecules, but it's a totally different system than the CTL cells. Right? It's called the missing self hypothesis. Right? In, in other ways, it's called missing self, because that, if that MHC class 1 molecule is not there, then those NK cells are going to be able to die. So, NK cells are also found in skid mice, severe combined immunodeficiency mice. So, it is thought that they develop from a lineage distinct from T cells, or that they develop from some sort of common progenitor prior to rearrangement of those T cell receptor genes. If those T cell receptors genes don't rearrange and then you don't get a T cell receptor on the cell surface, right, that could be part of the mechanism for NK cell development. Right? So we're really not sure where or how the NK cells come, right, but we absolutely know that they're critical for survival. The mechanisms of NK cell killing Right? Just like we talked about with CTL cells. If you remember, when we first described these null cells or these NK cells, we described them as large granular lymphocytes. So, as opposed to the, CT, as, as opposed to the CD8 positive cytotoxic T cells that need to develop right, all the machinery to destroy, and that means that right, their granules are going to come online and the granule contents are going to come online. These large granular lymphocytes already have granules in them. They already have everything they need to carry out their killing mechanisms, so they're ready to go. Right? So they're going to be able to bind and recognize, and clearly right, the binding and recognition is different than a CTL cell because binding and recognition of a CTL cell goes through the T cell receptor. Here the binding and recognition goes through those activation or those inhibitory receptors. Right? We're going to get trigger, the lethal hit, lysis, the NK cell is going to move away. The NK cell can now go out and around and start to look for other cells in the area that may be virally infected and use those receptors on the cell surface to destroy those cells as well. Okay. So if we look at regulation of activity, right, both tumor cells and virus-infected cells generally express a lower level of MHC class 1 molecules. Okay. So, not only are NK cells going to be there almost instantly to destroy right, virally infected cells, but they also have this other mechanism of virally infected cells and tumor cells to be able to respond to cells that have a lower level of that MHC class 1 molecule. Right. 
They recognize conserved self-peptides, whatever that self-peptide is, right? Air quotes, in MHC class one. And if replaced with a non-self-peptide, then killing is gonna be able to occur. So right now, people who are studying NK cells, right, they're very interested in trying to figure out, right, what these activation ligands are on the surface of cells, how these activation receptors are being, right, sort of involved in the recognition of these activation receptor ligands on the cell surface, right? What, what are the implications for this sort of uh, uh, interaction taking place right here? And also, right, how are these inhibitory receptors recognizing MAC class one molecules? If these NK cells haven't gone through the thymus and they haven't been educated, right, about our MHC class one molecules, then how is that interaction taking place? Right? So people are very much interested in Right, both the ligands and how these inhibitory receptors are recognizing this MHC class one molecule because if it never got educated to ignore it or not to respond to it, then how does it even know anything about an MHC class one molecule? Right. So, whoops, turn these all over at the same time. So if we, we're gonna compare CTL cells to NK cells, right? CTL cells need the T-cell receptor, they need CD3, they are restricted to MHC class one molecules of self because they've gone through the thymus, right? NK cells don't. They have thigh one on the surface and NK cells also have thigh one on the surface so that makes them very lymphocyte-like but they don't make their way to the thymus. CD2 because all lymphocytes have CD2 on the cell surface, CD8, is one of the major molecules, CD16 over here, right? Antigen activation, no antigen activation. There are lymphocytes, so they absolutely respond to T-cell growth. I mean, yes, they are T-lymphocyte-like, T, T, T so they both respond to interleukin-2 in terms of increasing activity, right? The granules need to be developed in those cytotoxic T cells, right, to turn into cytotoxic T lymphocytes, so the granules, yes, we're gonna have immunological memory over here. Yes, they already have their granules, so they have things like perforin and all the, and all the caspase activation enzymes that they need, but NK cells don't have any sort of immunological memory, right, because they aren't, right, uh, thymus sort of restricted T cells in, in that fact, right? so. NK cells are gonna be able to respond almost instantly. CTL cells are gonna take a little bit longer, right? So we've seen other examples of this, right? When we've talked about sort of complement, different complement cascades, right? The one complement cascade, classical cascade, needs to have the IgG molecule there. The alternative cascade is there to be able to respond instantly, right? So we have these other examples and just like these examples now on the cellular side for the ability of the immune system to respond almost instantly to an invader rather than waiting for right this development of the CTL cells that are going to take about a week then we have the NK cells that are patrolling and going to be able to respond almost instantly to what's going to be able to take place okay so that's where we should have been before we all had our nice little vacation. So, I don't know if you read the announcements, but 
I moved around part of the, of the syllabus, right? I had to move away. I had to take cell-mediated immunity off the table, right? Because we needed room for extra sort of uh, presentation time, right? So cell-mediated immunity is off the table, so that won't be on the final. So we're going to go right to immunodeficiencies, right? So cell-mediated immunity comes off. Immunodeficiencies go on, and we're going to continue the syllabus just like we were, right? Or just like it is lined out in, in the syllabus itself. So, up until now, right, we've been talking about the normal sort of day-to-day -day functions of the immune system. The immune system is at rest. The immune system becomes activated. Things start to develop to activate the immune system. The immune system now picks up on the destructions of pathogens. We clear right, our infection. We get rid of all the different pathogens. And now the immune system comes back to rest. And that's basically what we've been talking about. And all the other sort of things that are taking place here, you know, the complement system being activated appropriately and phagocytes being activated appropriately and T cells responding and B cells responding appropriately, right, led to that bell-shaped curve of starting out low, no sort of activation. This is time increasing. This is activity increasing. Right, we get, we've eliminated the pathogen, right, pathogen killed, the immune system comes back to rest. That's normal functioning that we've been talking about. But, like any other system that's out there, there are times when the immune system doesn't work right. And we can classify those times into three major sort of categories, right? we can start looking at immunodeficiencies, and these are you know, sort of shortcomings of the immune system. We can look at autoimmunity when that, that sort of bond to self is broken, right? The golden rule of the immune system is do no damage to self, right? But during autoimmunity, for different reasons that we'll talk about, that sort of bond is broken so that the immune system can attack self cells, right? And start to destroy self. And then also hypersensitivities, when the immune system responds inappropriately to a certain response. Right. So, this is what we're going to start talking about. Right. Let me just look at the syllabus, and I think... So what we're going to talk about for the rest of the time. Right. My job will be done when we stop talking about hypersensitivities. And you guys are going to take my stead by doing presentations. So, immunodeficiencies. The first sort of major malfunction, right, when the immune system doesn't work right, that we're going to start talking about, are diseases that are going to involve defects in one or more components of the immune system. So everything we've been talking about, right, of all the different systems, the cellular systems and lymphocytes and, and complement and, and everything else we've been talking about, right, sometimes it can go wrong, right? We're going to have a defect in one or more of these components. There's going to be two sort of broad groups of diseases when we talk about immunodeficiency diseases. And the first one are going to be primary or congenital immunodeficiencies. And this is going to, the, the root cause for this are going to be genetic defects, right? 
genetic defects that result in increased susceptibility to infections, and we're usually going to be able to see them manifested in early infancy and childhood. All told, there are about 70 different immunodeficiencies that we know about. So they're kind of rare, and you're going to see them in childhood. Again, we've talked about this before, right? Parents will bring their, their infant back to the doctor or their toddler. I don't understand it. You know, she's always sick. He's always sick. He always has a cold. Always has a runny nose. Always, you know, feels run down. Right? Everybody else in school, you know, gets sick and they sort of recover from normal sort of childhood illnesses. Right? Our child doesn't do that. So we're going to do some tests and some follow-up tests. And we could find that perhaps there is a primary immunodeficiency is the root cause of what's taking place. The other group, secondary or acquired immunodeficiencies, right? They're going to develop as a consequence of, right? For example, let's say disseminated cancers or treatment with immunosuppressive drugs, infections of, of immunocompetent cells, right? So if you think about, right, disseminated cancers, let's say there's a cancer patient and that cancer patient has some metastases and those cancer cells metastasize, that means they move from the primary node of the, of the cancer and they circulate throughout the body. And let's say one of those uh, metastases makes their way and that tumor cell lands in a lymph node someplace or it lands in the spleen. And then that cancer cell starts growing and it starts crowding out the cells inside that lymph node, it starts crowding out the cells inside that spleen. Right? So the architecture of that lymph node or the architecture of the spleen or maybe the architecture of the thymus is now going to become compromised and destroyed. All the cells that are in that organ at any, at that any one point are going to be destroyed. We have an immunodeficiency, right? Because we don't have proper functioning of the immune system. We don't have proper functioning of that lymph node or, or of the spleen, right? So treatment with immunosuppressive drugs, right? If you are a... If you're a transplant recipient, we need to be able to turn off the immune system so that the immune system doesn't attack that grafted right, organ because the immune system doesn't know, right, doesn't know that that organ is needed for survival of the host of you. So as transplant surgeons or transplant immunologists, we have to be able to turn off the immune response. Right? So that could result in an immunodeficiency, for example. Right? Interaction of immunocompetent cells, the one we're going to talk about today and, and next time we talk, right, are T helper cells infected with HIV. Right? HIV infects almost specifically T helper cells and destroys those CD4 positive cells. So that's going to result in, right, in, a, in, a, in an immunodeficiency. Basically, what we know of immunodeficiencies is, right, the primary consequence is going to be an increased susceptibility to an infection. Because we are basically going to battle without a certain aspect of the immune response. So we're crippled in terms of our sort of defense to a pathogen. So the nature of the infection, right, is going to depend, right, depends on the, the component of the immune system that's defective. So if, for example, right, we have that metastatic cell making its way to the spleen and the spleen's going to be destroyed, 
then we're not going to be able to be able to uh, sort of check for pathogens in the bloodstream, in the circulatory system, right? So that whole sort of activity of immune cells screening for pathogens or pieces of pathogens in the blood is going to be compromised, right? So the nature of the infection depends on the component. If B cells are going to be the ones that are affected, we're not going to have a good antibody response. If T cells are the ones that are infected, we're not going to have good cell-mediated response. The other part about it is that patients are also prone to certain types of cancers. This is one of the, of the sort of, not cause, but one of the, one of the, of the things that people have found to suggest that the immune system is capable of recognizing transformed cells and destroying transformed cells routinely. Right? If something happens to the immune system and the immune system is crippled and it can't perform its function, then these sort of normal cancers that the immune system is able to detect and destroy routinely can now be found in patients who are, right, uh, have an immunodeficiency themselves. Okay. Before antibiotics, right, most, most patients with primary immunodeficiencies died. Right? Because they didn't have, right, physicians didn't have a way of, of helping with the destruction of that pathogen, with helping with the crippled component of the immune system that was a going to allow that pathogen to destroy the host. The other part that you can take away from here, I mean, it's a horrible thing to think about, but the fact that they were studying these patients, right, and, and looking at these patients, it did provide insight Right, into normal pathways of defense. So if you found one of these patients, and you know, that basically is what's going to happen. Right? These patients will come to hospitals, tests will be done, and then when you find out what the immunodeficiency is, right, there are probably investigators out there, physician scientists out there, who are studying these deficiencies and seeing how they are part of or how they fit into the immune response. Right? And then those people will go to those physicians and they probably have better treatment regimes for those patients anyway. But when you get enough of this data and you see enough of these patients, right, you can see how those normal pathways are being inhibited and that gives you insight into how right, the normal functioning of the immune system takes place. So that's another sort of aspect of looking at immunodeficiencies themselves. But the majority of cases that we're going to talk about, or that you will probably see, right, because there's only about 70 of the type 1 cases, right, of those primary immunodeficiencies, the majority of those cases are acquired immunodeficiencies. So in terms of primary immunodeficiencies, right, like we talked about, we can have cellular deficiencies. So if you have problems with the phagocytes themselves, so some of the more common cellular deficiencies, right, leukocyte adhesion deficiency. Leukocyte adhesion deficiency is failure of neutrophils and monocytes to extravasate. Remember we talked about inflammation and we talked about those receptors on the surface of the endothelial cells and those receptors on the surface of the, of the neutrophils and the, and the macrophages, right? We had this and we had this. And then we had those cells sort of hitting and rolling along and stopping and then making their way out into the periphery. 
right, in terms of those adhesion molecules that are going to be stimulated both on the surface of these endothelial cells and on the surface of right, either the neutrophils or the macrophages themselves. So it's a defective synthesis or leukocyte adhesion deficiency is a defective synthesis of the adhesion molecule CD18. And CD18 is one of the major adhesion molecules. It's also called integrin beta 2. And it is what is going to be involved with right, these cells sort of interacting with the receptors on the surface of these endothelial cells and rolling and stopping and then moving out into the periphery. So this is one of the, the more common uh, characterized of the cellular deficiencies. Lazy leukocyte syndrome, right, those lazy leukocytes, this is involved with decreased neutrophil chemotaxis. Remember when we talked about the ability of right, these neutrophils to go up that concentration gradient? When we talked about maybe C5A being released, and as we went down and we got less and less C5A, right, the chemotaxis was involved with these neutrophils sensing those low levels and then making their way up the concentration gradient into the fields where we get higher and higher concentration of those chemotactic agents. And that's going to bring them directly to the area where these pathogens are. Right? So this is lazy leukocyte syndrome in terms of cellular deficiencies. We've talked a little bit about chronic granulomatous disease. Remember when we were talking about neutrophils and we were talking about the deficiency of, of NADPH oxidase, right? Defective killing by neutrophils. And that's going to result in defective NADPH oxidase. And if you take a closer look at, right, we said that NADPH oxidase was this multi-protein complex that was involved with electron transfer and stripping of electrons from oxygen molecules. So you can see that we have many, many, many different proteins that make up the complex itself. So we've been able to map these sort of deficiencies and in chronic granulomatous disease about 65% of the time, right, we have a problem with this, uh, this 91,000 molecular weight glycoprotein 5% of the time, right, it's going to be this one, 25% of the time it's this 47,000 molecular weight protein. So we're able to map and see, right, where the deficiencies are and this led to how NADPH oxidase works and the function of NADPH oxidase. So we did, gain, we did gain some basic research from investigating those patients, right, because clearly we have to be able to, we have to be able to treat those patients, but we also want to find out why, right, why those patients are in, a, in an immunodeficiency and when it comes to NADPH oxidase, right, most of the time it's going to be this molecule that is defective or this 47,000 molecular weight molecule that is defective. When it comes to humoral deficiencies, one of the more common ones is X-linked agammaglobulinemia or XLA. And XLA is a reduced B cell count, right? Agammaglobulinemia, less than normal sort of uh, immune molecules or immunoglobulins that's going to be produced. We have a reduced immunoglobulin concentration, and the, the, the defect here is a block in B cell maturation. 
and that block and B cell maturation has been traced to right, a crucial tyrosine kinase. When we talked about those tyrosine kinases before, right? And this particular tyrosine kinase has been called Burton's tyrosine kinase, or BTK. And these patients have a, have a defect in BTK, so they can't develop B cells normally, reduced B cell count, reduced immunoglobulin molecules, reduced antibodies in circulation. Pathogen has an advantage, right? So this, these individuals are going to be sick. So we've got a whole bunch of different immunodeficiencies. Right? In terms of there's the Georges syndrome, that's an immunodeficiency, right? We don't have a proper thymus, we don't get the right amount of B cells or T cells, right? We have a bunch of other X-linked uh, sort of uh, diseases, right? There's aglamoglobulinemia, lock of the, the chirase, we have what's called hyper-IgM syndrome, right? We have uh, improper CD40 ligand. We have uh, improper CD40 and CD40 ligand, right? When we talked about AID, that deamidase, that could be a deficiency. We have a whole bunch of sort of differences that are taking place, even complement deficiencies, right? Many different complement molecules can be affected, and this is going to result in right, lack of complement activation. So we have all sorts of examples of primary immunodeficiencies, and again, these have now, now that we've sequenced the genome, we can bring these back and we can see that a lot of immunodeficiencies are, have their root in a lot of those MHC molecules, right? So MHC class 1 deficiency, MHC class 2 deficiency, right? So we have all these sort of uh, aspects of problems with the immune response. The most severe of the immunodeficiencies is combined immunodeficiency. And this is the most serious since they affect both branches of the immune system, both the humoral branch and the cellular branch. That's why they're called combined immunodeficiencies. So we have severe combined immunodeficiencies or SCID. There's a bunch of different sort of SCID uh, subtypes. Uh, let's just sort of go to here. And this is going to be defective development of B cells and or T cells. So we're going to have deficient humoral and cell-mediated immunity because the B cells aren't working and the T cells aren't working. Abnormal development of B cells and T cells from stem cells, right, could be part of the reason that this is going to be able to take place. But the most common cause of these severe combined immunodeficiencies, right, is a deficiency in captain. If you remember when we talked about cytokine receptors and we were talking specifically about the interleukin-2 receptor, we said the interleukin-2 receptor shared its gamma chain with other cytokines, right? It's also, so that gamma chain is also a component of the, the interleukin-4 receptor, the interleukin-7 receptor, the interleukin-9, and the interleukin-15 receptor. So the gamma chain was the signaling chain. So if the gamma chain is defective, that means interleukin-2 responses are gone. Interleukin-4, interleukin-7, interleukin-9, and interleukin-15 responses are all gone. All right. So this is severe combined immunodeficiency. Right. You probably have heard about severe combined immunodeficiency. It was bubble boy disease, right. the boy who's in, in the bubble. Right. There's, right, if you remember, in TV, that's the sort of the TV movie that made John Travolta, John Travolta. Right. Before he was in Welcome Back, Cotter, he was the bubble boy. Right? If there was that, that really sort of low-rent 
movie, right, with, before Jake Gyllenhaal was the Prince of Persia, right? He was a bubble boy, only that one. He was sort of running around, right? He had his portable bubble, I don't know, he was running all over the place. And they even talked, right, even George Costanza got in trouble with a bubble boy on Seinfeld one time, right? So there's all sorts of examples. They're clearly you know, all in bad taste, right? So when you look at skid, Right, we got a bunch of different skid sort of subclasses. Here's the interleukin-2 receptor gamma chain, so cytokine signaling. Interleukin-7 receptor is, is sort of involved. Right? If we take out RAG1 and RAG2, if we have a defect in RAG1 or RAG2, it means that both T cells and B cells can be affected. We talked about Artemis, that, right, that uh, nuclease. So if Artemis, even though we get RAG1 and RAG2, if Artemis isn't there, then we're going to have a problem with Artemis. But again, Right, the major sort of one in terms of, in terms of these severe combined immunodeficiency is that gamma chain deficiency. So almost 50% of all of severe combined immunodeficiencies are going to be from right, having that gamma chain being defective in terms of not being able to signal with all those different sort of cytokines that are taking place. So those are the primary immunodeficiencies, the major sort of secondary immunodeficiency that we know about and that has been in the news, right, and has been a the scourge of public health for decades now is acquired immunodeficiency or AIDS. So AIDS has a history that dates back to the summer of 1981 or so. In 1981, there were five cases of pneumocystis carinii, right, from the same area of Los Angeles. And pneumocystis carinii is a type of a pneumonia <clears throat> that's caused by a normally harmless protozoan. If you get infected with pneumocystis carinii, your immune system, right, for a non-compromised patient, Right? And it could either be right, so by a primary or a secondary autoimmune deficiency. Right? You normally destroy pneumocystis carinii without a problem. Right? If you are immunocompromised, right, then it's going to be able to cause pneumonia. And in the summer of 1981, they also found this rare sort of a sarcoma. It's Carposi's sarcoma. It's a tumor from, that arises from blood vessel tissues, and you normally don't see Carposi's sarcoma in a non-immunocompromised individual. Right? A person with a normal functioning immune system, you normally don't see Carposi's sarcoma. Again, given a little more right, circumstantial evidence to the fact that the immune system is able to respond to and destroy tumor cells. So if you're immunocompromised, a normal sort of protozoan is going to be able to start causing disease and a routine sort of, of uh, transformation of blood, ve blood vessel tissue that's going to result in this sarcoma is going to be found in those patients. And the thought was, right, because there's something wrong with the immune system, so they're immunocompromised. So people started looking, and they were looking at more and more cases to see what was taking place. And they found other opportunist, opportunistic infections in these patients and other patients in these areas. And an opportun, opportunistic infection, as its name implies, right, are diseases found only in individuals with a compromised immune system. It means that right, these sort of common components of the environment that are normally knocked down and destroyed by the immune system now have an advantage 
because of some sort of immunocompromise to the patient that has now taken effect. So, this all started to be looked at in the summer of 1981 or so by right, that following fall or into the, 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 the turn of the, of, the, of the year as more information was found, right, all these victims were found to have low CD4 positive counts. So something was destroying T helper cells in these individuals. Okay. So the T helper cells were being destroyed. And there were enough of these cases by early in 1982, only a few months later, that we're now going to be able to classify them into right, a moniker that we're going to call acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. So what takes place here is right, physicians usually report to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. The Centers for Disease Control is the national clearinghouse of everything about diseases in the federal government. So every month, or I guess it must be every month or so, physicians are supposed to fill out a form, and now I'm sure they do it over the internet, and the form probably goes something like, have you seen anything wacky in your practice? We would like to know, right? Because that's the only way we can gather data to look at public health issues from a national point of view, right? If this physician or these couple of physicians are in Los Angeles and they're looking at these cases, they're just thinking, yeah, okay. I got a couple of immunocompromised patients here. I'll treat them. You know, we'll find out whatever that immunocompromised, you know, aspect of them is all about, and I'll send them on their way. But right, if this physician's office and this one and this one and this neighborhood from this city, from this you know sort of neighborhood in this city, from this region in the country, right, we need to be able to see all sorts of public health threats that are coming, you know, to the forefront from a national point of view. So that's what the CDC is all about, right? Their headquarters are in Atlanta, and they are the public health sort of, you know, agency of the United States government itself. So more and more of these sort of cases started to come in, and as more and more of these cases start to appear, right, now we've got to be able to look at them, now we've got to be able to keep track of them because it looks like it might be a threat to the public health of the population, right? So we need to be able to start seeing and start tracking and start trying to help these patients. Right? They come to find out at the same time, right, early 1982 or so, that AIDS is going to be caused by direct sexual contact and by blood products could be involved, right? When infectious agents are found, to be in the blood supply, that's when public health officials start to freak out, right? Because if we are telling people that they need to donate blood, but some of the blood that patients may be donating is now contaminated with an infectious agent, right? That means that those blood products are now going to be into general circulation. So if, right, somebody goes into the ER and they need to have an operation or they need to have a transfusion, we have the, right, the, uh, not the ability, we have the, the, I guess it would be the ability to start giving these patients this immunocompromised, right, syndrome, whatever this is. But once the blood system is in, is in sort of peril, that's when red flags start to go off, right? So that's when we really have to start looking at things. So it took a few more years, but by 1983 or 1984, right, we finally have tracked down the identification of the, the agent 
the etiological agent that's involved, and it was a, a virus, and now we're going to call that virus hum, human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV. The discovery of HIV right, led to a Nobel Prize in 2008. Also, right, this whole sort of timeline here involved a whole lot of international intrigue at the time when this was happening. And it got to the point, right, when this all started in December 1981, it got to the point that it made it to, right, sort of the president's office by 1987 or so. As it turns out, in 1983, right, people were starting to track down what the agent was. And the reason they're trying to track down what the agent was is because they need to know, right, if we can have an effective way to defeat this agent. Yeah, that's both. Let's get to the real reason. The real reason they wanted to know is because they wanted to make a blood test. Right? And we're making a blood test because we want to try to protect, right, sort of the, the blood supply of the United States. Yeah, that's both. We don't want to do that either. We want to be able to sell our blood test to the highest bidder, right? Because we all want a house on the beach. So that's what this came down to, right? I don't, you can tell I'm kind of cynical when it comes to these sort of things. But yes, let's assume that people wanted to help patients and treat blood and they didn't want to live on the beach. So, right, they take these blood products and they're looking to find out what the agent was so they can make a test. And they're going to make that test so that every single person collecting blood has to buy that, well, has to use that test, right, to be able to make sure that their blood supply is, is not contaminated. So, as scientists do, right, people sort of spread their reagents back and forth. So there were some scientists in the United States who asked for some cell lines from their colleagues in France, okay? And the people in the United States used these cell lines and a, a couple of months later they publish a paper in one of the major scientific journals that says, here's the agent. It's HIV. It's this time. It's this kind of a, of a virus. We've seen these viruses before. It's a new member of these type of viruses. It's HIV. Here's pieces of it. Here's what we need to do. Here's how we make a blood test. Here's what we're going to do about it, right? And they publish all their data. But now the people in France go, "Hey, wait a minute. What about us? We gave you those cell lines, and we, we found in these cell lines." We found that this HIV, and we were about to publish, and the HIV that we found is the same exact sequence of the HIV that you guys found. How do you explain that? And the people in the United States, they were, uh, uh, because we found it. We're, we're okay. We're, uh, so the people in France, you know, they get all pissed off and they start calling up their government. And so then the, you know, the French president, Jacques Chirac, calls up Ronald Reagan and says, Ron, what's going on? You know, my scientists here tell me, you know, that something is wrong with these investigations. So Ronald Reagan gets on the phone now. I don't know if he got on the phone. He calls the Treasury Department, Treasury Department, right? Secret Service, the Treasury Department, they're in charge of all this sort of stuff. So the Secret Service goes down to these laboratories in Bethesda, Maryland. They collect all the notebooks. They start doing all this sort of, you know, sort of analysis. And they're finding in these notebooks, some pages are ripped out. And they're finding in these notebooks, some pages are stuffed in. And they're finding in these notebooks that some of the ink 
that was used couldn't possibly be the ink that was around in 1982. I mean, these guys are real, they know what they're doing, right? So they say, whoa, 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 you know, Bic pens didn't start making this ink till at least 1987 or 1990. You know, how do you guys, how do you explain the fact that there are some notations in your notebooks that were written, you know, probably six or seven years after you did all your research? And those guys went, uh, uh, we have no idea, but it, it's the right thing. We did the right thing. So, right, the French come to the United States and they say, all right, the United States, this is what we're doing. Clearly, your guys stole our guys' ideas, so we're going we're gonna to split the money. It's all come down to the money. We're going to split the money from the test 50-50. And the United States says, what are you talking about? We're going to give you 80-20. And the French come back and say, uh, 75-20. So they, they negotiate this thing. So now, right, the United States gets 60% of the money. The French get 40% of the money. The French are, are given credit for the discovery of HIV. The United States scientists, even though they're not very nice, are given, you know, credit for the fact that HIV is the agent that causes AIDS, right? So you think from Right? From a, a lowly old laboratory of somebody working all the way to this international incidence, right? it made its way all the way to those different areas as these things were starting to take place. Come on, I still got a minute. So, what do we know about AIDS these days? Well, last time right, you can get really good data was from 2008 or so. About a million people were, in the United States are infected with HIV. There are about 40,000 new infections and about 18,000 deaths every year. Worldwide, right, last good data, about 33 million people are infected. There are about 2.5 million new infections and about 2.4 million deaths every single day. If you look at the, across the planet, one in every 100 people, about 1% of the Earth's population is infected with HIV, right? 6,000 cases every day, about 6,000 deaths every day, right? about 25 million people have died from HIV. So, we'll talk more about HIV, I don't even know when I go again, right? But Wednesday, presentations, get here early, hand in some jump drives, we'll line them all up and we'll be good to go. Yep. The what? No. Nope.